Chapter 19, Part 3 of Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 19. The Communes and the Third Estate. Part 3. In 1106, the bishopric of Léon had been two years vacant. It was sought after and obtained for a sum of money, say contemporaries, by Godry, a Norman by birth, referendary of Henry I, King of England, and one of those churchmen who, according to Monsieur Augustin Thierry's expression, had gone in the train of William the Bastard to seek their fortunes amongst the English by seizing the property of the vanquished. It appears that thenceforth the life of Godry had been scarcely edifying. He had, it is said, the tastes and habits of a soldier. He was hasty and arrogant, and he liked beyond everything to talk of fighting and hunting, of arms, of horses, and of hounds. When he was repairing with a numerous following to Rome, to ask for confirmation of his election, he met at Langres, Pope Pascal II, come to France to keep the festival of Christmas at the Abbey of Cluny. The Pope had no doubt heard something about the indifferent reputation of the new bishop, for the very day after his arrival at Langres, he held a conference with the ecclesiastics who had accompanied Godry, and plied them with questions concerning him. He asked us first, said Gibert of Nogent, who was in the train, why we had chosen a man who was unknown to us. As none of the priests, some of whom did not even know the first rudiments of the Latin language, made any answer to this question, he turned to the abbots. I was seated between my two colleagues. As they likewise kept silence, I began to be urged right and left to speak. I was one of those whom this election had displeased but with culpable timidity I had yielded to the authority of my superiors in dignity. With the bashfulness of youth, I could only with great difficulty and much blushing prevail upon myself to open my mouth. The discussion was carried on, not in our mother tongue, but in the language of scholars. I therefore, though with great confusion of mind and face, betook myself to speak in a manner to tickle the palate of him who was questioning us wrapping up in artfully arranged form of speech expressions which were softened down, but were not entirely removed from the truth. I said that we did not know, it was true, to the extent of having been familiar by sight and intercourse with him, the man of whom we had made choice, but that we had received favorable reports of his integrity. The Pope strove to confound my arguments by this quotation from the Gospel, He that hath seen giveth testimony, but as he did not explicitly raise the objection that Godry had been elected by desire of the court, all subtle subterfuge on any such point became useless. So I gave it up, and confessed that I could say nothing in opposition to the pontiff's words, which pleased him very much, for he had less scholarship than would have become his high office. Clearly perceiving, however, that all the phrases I had piled up in defense of our election had but little weight, I launched out afterwards upon the urgent straits wherein our church was placed, and on this subject I gave myself 
the more reigned in proportion as the person elected was unfitted for the functions of the episcopate. Godry was indeed very scantily fitted for the office of bishop, as the town of Leon was not slow to perceive. Scarcely had he been installed when he committed strange outrages. He had a man's eyes put out on suspicion of connivance with his enemies, and he tolerated the murder of another in the Metropolitan Church. In imitation of rich crusaders on their return from the east, he kept a black slave whom he employed upon its deeds of vengeance. The burghers began to be disquieted and to wax wroth. During a trip the bishop made to England, they offered a great deal of money to the clergy and knights who ruled in his absence, if they would consent to recognize, by a genuine act, the right of the commonality of the inhabitants to be governed by authorities of their own choice. The clergy and knights, says a contemporary chronicler, came to an agreement with the common folk in hopes of enriching themselves in a speedy and easy fashion. A commune was therefore set up and proclaimed at Léon, on the model of that of Noyon, and invested with effective powers. The bishop, on his return, was very wroth, and for some days abstained from re-entering the town. But the burghers acted with him, as they had with his clergy and his knights. They offered him so large a sum of money that it was enough, says Gibert of Nogent, to appease the tempest of his words. He accepted the commune and swore to respect it. The burghers wished to have a higher warranty, so they sent to Paris, to King Louis the Fat, a deputation laden with rich presents. The king, said the chronicler, won over by this plebeian bounty, confirmed the commune by his own oath, and the deputation took back to Léon, their charter sealed with the great seal of the crown, and augmented by two articles to the following purport. The folks of Léon shall not be liable to be forced to law away from their own town. If the king have a suit against any one amongst them, justice shall be done him in the Episcopal court. For these advantages, and others further granted to the aforesaid inhabitants by the king's munificence, the folks of the commune have covenanted to give the king, besides the old plenary court dues, and man and horse dues, dues paid for exemption from active service in case of war, three lodgings a year if he come to town, and if he do not come, they will pay him instead twenty livres for each lodging. For three years the town of Leon was satisfied and tranquil. The burghers were happy in the security they enjoyed and proud of the liberty they had won. But in 1112, the knights, the clergy of the Metropolitan Church, and the bishop himself had spent the money they had received and keenly regretted the power they had lost, and they meditated reducing to the old condition the serfs emancipated from their yoke. The bishop invited King Louis the Fat to come to Léon for the keeping of Holy Week, calculating upon his presence for the intimidation of the burghers. But the burghers, who were in fear of ruin, says Gibert of Nogent, promised the king and those about him four hundred livres or more, I am not quite sure which, whilst the bishop and the grandees on their side urged the monarch to come to an understanding with them and engaged to pay him seven hundred livres. King Louis was so striking in person that he seemed made expressly for the majesty of the throne. He was courageous in war, a foe to all slowness in business, and stout-hearted in adversity. Sound, however, as he was on every other point, 
he was hardly praiseworthy in this one respect, that he opened too readily both heart and ear to vile fellows corrupted by avarice. This vice was a fruitful source of hurt as well as blame to himself, to say nothing of unhappiness to many. The cupidity of this prince always caused him to incline towards those who promised him most. All his own oaths, and those of the bishops and the grandees, were consequently violated. The charter sealed with the king's seal was annulled, and on the part of the king and the bishop, an order was issued to all the magistrates of the commune to cease from their functions, to give up the seal and banner of the town, and to no longer ring the belfry chimes which rang out in the opening and closing of their audiences. But at this proclamation, so violent was the uproar in the town, that the king, who had hitherto lodged in a private hotel, thought it prudent to leave, and to go to pass the night in the Episcopal Palace, which was surrounded by strong walls. Not content with this precaution, and probably a little ashamed of what he had done, he left Leon the next morning at daybreak, with all his train, without waiting for the festival of Easter, for the celebration of which he had undertaken his journey. All the day after his departure, the shops of the tradespeople and the houses of the innkeepers were kept closed. No sort of article was offered for sale. Everybody remained shut up at home. But when there is a wrath at the bottom of men's souls, the silence and stupor of the first paroxysm are of short duration. Next day a rumor spread that the bishop and the grandees were busy in calculating the fortunes of all citizens, in order to demand that, to supply the sum promised to the king, each should pay on account of the destruction of the commune as much as he had given for its establishment. In a fit of violent indignation the burghers assembled, and forty of them bound themselves by oaths, for life or death, to kill the bishop and all those grandees who had labored for the ruin of the commune. The archdeacon, Anselm, was a good sort of man, of obscure birth, who heartily disapproved of the bishop's perjury, when it nevertheless warned him, quite privately, and without betraying any one of the danger that threatened him, urging him not to leave his house, and particularly not to accompany the procession on Easter Day. Pooh, answered the bishop, I die by the hands of such fellows? Next day, nevertheless, he did not appear at Matins, and did not set foot within the church, but when the hour for the procession came, fearing to be accused of cowardice, he issued forth at the head of his clergy, closely followed by his domestics and some knights with arms and armor under their clothes. As the company filed past, one of the forty conspirators, thinking the moment favorable for striking the blow, rushed out suddenly from under an arch with a shout of, Commune! Commune! A low murmur ran through the throng, but not a soul joined in the shout or the movement, and the ceremony came to an end without any explosion. The day after, another solemn procession was to take place to the church of St. Vincent. Somewhat reassured, but still somewhat disquieted, the bishop fetched from the domains of the bishopric a body of peasants, some of whom he charged to protect the church, others his own palace, and once more accompanied the procession without the conspirators daring to attack him. This time he was completely reassured, and dismissed the peasants he had sent for. On the fourth day after Easter, says Gibert of Nogent, my corn having been pillaged in consequence of the disorder that reigned in the town, I repaired to the bishops, and prayed him to put a stop to the state of violence. 
"'What do you suppose?' said he to me. "'Those fellows can do with all their outbreaks. "'Why, if my blackamoor John were to pull the nose of the most formidable among them, "'the poor devil durst not even grumble. "'Have I not forced them to give up what they call their commune "'for the whole duration of my life?' "'I held my tongue,' adds Joubert. "'Many folks besides me warned him of his danger, "'but he would not deign to believe anybody.' Three days later all seemed quiet, and the bishop was busy with his archdeacon in discussing the sums to be exacted from the burghers. All at once a tumult arose in the town, and a crowd of people thronged the streets shouting, Commune! Commune! Bands of burghers, armed with swords, axes, bows, hatches, clubs, and lances, rushed into the Episcopal Palace. At the news of this, the knights who had promised the bishop to go to his assistance if he needed it, came up one after another to his protection, and three of them in succession were hotly attacked by the burger bands and fell after a short resistance. The Episcopal Palace was set on fire. The bishop, not being in a condition to repulse the attacks of the populace, assumed the dress of one of his own domestics, fled to the cellar of the church, shut himself in, and ensconced himself in a cask, the bunghole of which he was stopped up by a faithful servitor. The crowd wandered about everywhere in search of him on whom they wished to wreak their vengeance. A bandit named Togard, notorious in those times for his robberies, assaults, and murders of travelers, had thrown himself headlong into the cause of the commune. The bishop, who knew him, had by way of pleasantry and on account of his evil mane, given him the nickname of Isengren. This was the name which was given in the fables of the day to the wolf, and which responded to that of Master Reynard. Tutgard and his men penetrated into the cellar of the church. They went along tapping upon all the casks, and on what suspicion there is no knowing, but Tutgard hauled up in front of that in which the poor bishop was huddled up, and had it open, crying, Is there anyone here? Only a poor prisoner, answered the bishop, trembling. Ha ha, said the playful bandit, who recognized the voice. So it is you, Master Eisengrin, who are hiding here? And he took him by the hair and dragged him out of the cask. The bishop implored the conspirators to spare his life, and offered to swear on the Gospels to abjicate the bishopric, promising them all the money he possessed, and saying that if they pleased, he would leave the country. The reply was insults and blows. He was immediately dispatched, and Tutgard, seeing the episcopal ring glittering on his finger, cut off the finger to get possession of the ring. The body, stripped of all covering, was thrust into a corner where passerbys threw stones or mud at it, accompanying their insults with ribaldry and curses. Murder and arson are contagious. All the day of the insurrection and all the following night, armed bands wandered about the streets of Leon, searching everywhere for relatives, friends, or servitors of the bishop, for all whom the angry populace knew or supposed to be such, and wreaking on their persons or their houses a ghastly and a brutal vengeance. In a fit of terror, many poor innocents fled before the blind wrath of the populace. Some were caught and cut down pell-mell amongst the guilty. Others escaped through the vineyards planted between two hills on the outskirts of the town. The progress of the fire, kindled on two sides at once, was so rapid, says Gibert of Nogent, and the winds drove the flames so furiously in the direction of the convent of St. Vincent, 
that the monks were afraid of seeing all they possessed become the fire's prey, and all the persons who had taken refuge in this monastery trembled as if they had seen swords hanging over their heads. Some insurgents stopped a young man who had been body-servant to the bishop and asked him whether the bishop had been killed or not. They knew nothing about it, nor did he know any more. He helped them to look for the corpse, and when they came upon it, it had been so mutilated that not a figure was recognizable. I remember, said the young man, that when the prelate was alive, he liked to talk of deeds of war, for which to his hurt he always showed too much bent, and he often used to say that one day in a sham fight, just as he was, all in the way of sport, attacking a certain knight, the latter hit him with his lance and wounding him under the neck, near the tracheal artery. The body of Godry was eventually recognized by this mark, and Archdeacon Anselm went the next day, says Gibert of Nogent, to beg of the insurgents permission at least to bury it, if only because it had once borne the title and worn the insignia of bishop. They consented, but reluctantly. It were impossible to tell how many threats and insults were launched against those who undertook the obsequies, and what outrageous language was vented against the dead himself. His corpse was thrown into a half-dug hole, and at church there was none of the preachers or ceremonies prescribed for the burial of, I will not say a bishop, but the worst of Christians. A few days afterwards, Raoul, Archbishop of Rim, came to Léon to purify the church. The wise and venerable Archbishop, said Gibert, after having on his arrival seen to the more decently disposing the remains of some of the dead and celebrated divine service in memory to all, amidst the tears and utter grief of the relatives and connections, suspended the holy sacrifice of the Mass in order to deliver a discourse touching those execrable institutions of communes whereby we see serfs, contrary to all right and justice, withdrawing themselves by force from the lawful authority of their masters. Here is a striking instance of the changeableness of men's feelings and judgments, and it causes a shock even when it is natural and almost allowable. Gibert of Nogent, the contemporary historian, who was but lately loud in his blame of the Bishop of Léon's character and conduct, now takes issue with the reaction aroused by popular excesses and vindictiveness, and is indignant with those execrable institutions of communes, the source of so many disturbances and crimes. The burghers of Léon themselves, having reflected upon the number and enormity of the crimes they had committed, shrank up with fear, says Gibert, and dreaded the judgment of the king. To protect himself against the consequences of his resentment, they added a fresh wound to the old by summoning to their aid Thomas de Marle, son of Earl Ingerand de Cousy. This Thomas, from his earliest youth, enriched himself by plundering the poor and the pilgrim, contracted several incestuous marriages, and it exhibited a ferocity so unheard of in our age that certain people, even amongst those who have a reputation for cruelty, appear less lavish of the blood of common sheep than Thomas was of human blood. Such was the man whom the burghers of Léon implored to come and put himself at their head, and whom they welcomed with joy when he entered their town. As for him, when he had heard their request, he consulted his own people to know what he ought to do, and they all replied that his forces were not sufficiently numerous to defend such a city against the king. 
Thomas then induced the burghers to go out and hold a meeting in a field where he would make known to them his plan. When they were about a mile from the town, he said to them, Leon is the head of the kingdom. It is impossible for me to keep the king from making himself master of it. If you dread his arms, follow me to my own land, and you will find in me a protector and a friend. These words threw them into an excess of consternation. Soon, however, the popular party, troubled by the recollection of the crime they had committed, and fancying that they already saw the king threatening their lives, fled away to the number of a great many in the wake of Thomas. Tudgard himself, that murderer of Bishop Godry, hastened to put himself under the wing of the Lord of Marie. Before long, the rumor spread abroad amongst the population of the country places near Leon that the town was quite empty of inhabitants, and all the peasants rushed thither and took possession of the houses they found without defenders. Who could tell, or be believed if he were to attempt to tell, how much money, raiment, and provisions of all kinds was discovered in this city? Before long there arose between the first and last comers disputes about the partition of their plunder. All that the small folks had taken soon passed into the hands of the powerful. If two men met a third quite alone, they stripped him. The state of the town was truly pitiable. The burghers who had quitted it with Thomas de Marl had beforehand destroyed and burned the houses of the clergy and grandees whom they hated. And now the grandees escaped from the massacre, carried off in their turn from the houses of the fugitives all means of subsistence and all movables to the very hinges and bolts. End of chapter 19, part 3 Recording by Alan Winteroud, boomcoach.blogspot.com